Our Old Testament text today comes from Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 and 10. The Lord's word came to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and declare against it the proclamation that I am commanding you. And Jonah got up and went to Nineveh, according to the Lord's word. Now Nineveh was indeed an enormous city, a three days walk across. Jonah started into the city, walking one day, and he cried out, Just forty days more, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on mourning clothes, from the greatest of them to the least significant of them. God saw what they were doing, that they had ceased their evil behavior, so God stopped, planning to destroy them, and he didn't do it. This is the word of God for the people of God. <laughs> Our New Testament passage comes from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee announcing God's good news, saying, now is the time, here comes God's kingdom, change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. As Jesus passed alongside the Galilee Sea, he saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew. They were fishermen, so they were throwing fishing nets into the sea. Come, follow me, he said, and I'll show you how to fish for people. And so right away, they left their nets and followed him. After going a little farther, he saw James and John, Zebedee's sons, in their boat repairing the fishing nets. At that very moment, he called them, and they followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired workers. This is the word of God for the people of God. Yes, thanks be to God. For the last couple of weeks, Pastor Scott has been preaching from two texts in the lectionary, an Old Testament text and a New Testament text. Now, one of these things that I love about this is that we get to see scripture kind of in conversation with itself, right? We see, we see things that are similar and we see things that are different. And oftentimes, I like to think that we're better for hearing both. Now, I also love the Old Testament, uh, and so I just also selfishly love the fact that I also get to preach from the Old Testament, not just the New Testament, although I love Jesus. Um, <laughs> today, our, our two texts involve fish of some kind, right? In the book of Jonah, he first receives his commission to go to Nineveh, but he refuses, goes on a boat, there's this huge storm, the crew throws him overboard, he's eaten up by a fish, and then he's spat up by said fish, ew, and then goes to Nineveh to actually do what God has asked him to do in the first place, right? So we see in the text for today in Jonah, right, the, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. So it's a second chance. And if you've ever seen the VeggieTales version, uh, part of why Jonah doesn't want to go there is because they slap each other with fish. Now, that's not historically accurate, uh, but you get the point, right? <laughs> this is Syrian city. They slap each other with fish, this violence. I think it's gross, so that works for me. Um, and in Mark, right, we have the calling of the first disciples that are fishermen. And we have a section that talks about fishing for people. Now, I have to confess, this whole idea of fishing is one that I do not do well with. I'm not really good at fishing. Uh, I'm incredibly impatient, so I like cast out and then I like reel back in. Uh, cast out and I like reel back in. So if I was fishing for all of you right now, I would get no one because I was way too fast. <laughs> and second of all, I cannot stand fish scales. 
like the look of them, the texture, the like feet, like no thanks, I do not want to feel it, I really can't stand it. And then they came out with these like weird sequency pillows, but also shirts that if you like move your hand on it, then it may change colors or it may have a phrase or a word or a t-shirt shows an image. And I, it just reminds me way too much of fish scales. I cannot get on board with those to save my life. <laughs> I could, and, and I, throughout this week as I was preparing, I may or may not have thought, why did I choose this week out of all of them that has such fishy references? Okay, I got that out of the way. I feel better. <laughs> because there's more things to learn from this passage, from both of these, other than my fish scale avoidance. In both Jonah and Mark, we have two proclamations made. One is from Jonah saying, just 40 days more, and Nineveh will be, or yes, will be overthrown. Woohoo! Right? Like, no, don't party, right? So encouraging. And then we have Jesus, on the other hand, announcing the beginning of his ministry and the arrival of the kingdom of God. Now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. The tone of each is completely different. The messengers, Jonah and Jesus, in some sense, are also very different. Right? We have Jonah that ran away from God's instructions. But then we have Jesus willingly submitting himself to God's possibilities and the newness of the kingdom of God. Now, interestingly, even though the messages are so different, and even the messengers we see responses from those listening to be fairly similar. So not only does Jesus announce that God's kingdom is here, but soon calls quickly, right, Simon and Andrew, and then James and John. For both sets of brothers, it's fascinating because there's this quick and entire response from them. Right? Like they have dropped their nets. The call of Jesus has changed their lives in a moment. Simon and Andrew dropped their nets and followed. James and John also dropped their nets. And we see that they kind of also leave this family business, possibly even a booming family business because they have hired workers. And so they leave their father's ebony when they're hired workers. They leave their nets, their security, their comfort, and the familiar to follow Jesus wherever he may go. And they took up this call to be fishers of people. I like to think of it as those who once kind of caught fish for profit for their own livelihood have set down their nets to help others catch the newness and the life of the kingdom of God or to be caught up in the life and the newness of the kingdom of God. Scholars go back and forth as to whether or not uh, this is kind of the first time that the brothers have heard of Jesus, right, this calling, because they're, they're trying to figure out why in the world do they reply or why do they respond so quickly? Why do they do this? And so they, some scholars argue that the gospel, other gospel accounts um, give space to say that the brothers had already kind of heard of Jesus. They knew who Jesus was, and so that's why they respond. It's because they've had, maybe had time to think about it, like, oh, hey, that Jesus guy, maybe we should follow him. But when we look at Mark, it's really important to look at what is said and what is left unsaid. Mark doesn't really give us this background information that's necessary for us to say for sure that the brothers knew who Jesus was and knew what was going to happen. 
They did have, right, John the Baptist, so a part of Mark's text was saying this kind of passing of leadership has happened. John has now gone. John was in the wilderness proclaiming, right, be ready, it's coming. Jesus is now in Galilee saying, it is here, I am here. But again, there's, there's, there's debate as to whether or not they had this background, but Jesus' call Right? Jesus no longer is waiting for what is to come, and his announcement of the inauguration of the kingdom of God is enticing enough for these two sets of brothers to drop their nets. The kingdom of God being both fully present or being present and not fully realized. An electionary is curious. So last week, we read from the gospel according to John, and we have more insight into that conversation than when John records it, right? So we have this calling of Philip and Nathaniel, and Nathaniel is astounded by the fact that he is seen by Christ, right? This is the fig tree. He's like, oh, you saw me there? But again, in Mark, there's no such dialogue. You don't get this back and forth between who Jesus is calling and himself. But we still see this full and entire commitment scene at an amazing rate, in the book of Jonah, we have another group of people, a whole city from the kings to the cows, who repent. A city is changed, or in some sense, right, turned upside down as they reorient themselves towards God. In Hebrew, the word for repent is shuv, or to turn. Right, so you're turning from what you once did, and you're turning from patterns and systems of brokenness. An element of this kind of returning is recognizing that what you're currently facing or currently living into are patterns of brokenness instead of patterns of renewal. And so we turn away from these destructive habits and from the brokenness, and we turn towards the God that is calling us and helping us change our hearts and lives. Sometimes it feels like a whole 180, and sometimes it's a little movement, a tiny turn of reorienting. Now, you and I today, right, we know that this is a part of the call, especially as we've just heard this in Mark, right? Jesus is saying, change your hearts and lives. We know that God is helping us and calling us, but there's little evidence to show that the city of Nineveh and the book of Jonah had that call or really understood it, right? Jonah's message didn't really tell the city to repent. Jonah says, in 40 days, God will overthrow your city. You can shorten it down to doom, right? Like doom for you and you and you, right? Like from the kings to the cows, all of you are going to be destroyed. <sighs> no, like good luck. No, like, hey, maybe you should repent because the God that I, that I follow and that serves and that calls may show mercy. Nope, none of it. <laughs> and Jonah, what gets me too is this is the message that we get after Jonah had failed the first time, received grace, and then is presented with this new opportunity. That's what we get. <laughs> but surprisingly, the king of Nineveh, the king of the sinners, of the fish-slapping people, <laughs> reacts with full repentance, both personally, but calls for it communally, so this is in the, the chapter 3. So we read 1 through 5, verses 1 through 5, and then verse 10. In the middle of that is the king calling for repentance. 
There's, there's the repentance involving sitting in ashes, a traditional posture of repentance. There's fasting. The king of Nineveh is honest about the brokenness that they've been a part of. He names it. There's a call to stop evil behavior and violence. And he names them specifically. And why? Because this king somehow, rightly and surprisingly, thinks in verse 9, who knows? God may see this and turn, shoot even, from his wrath so that we might not perish. And this king's response is fascinating. Because here is the king of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh, being a part of Assyria, which is one of the empires of the Old Testament that destroys the Israelites. So, right, if we think of, I always was, I was think of some, if we have like sermon bingo, right, on what has been said, empire, check, right? So we have these kinds of things. Assyria is one of those empires. So for the Israelites, for Jonah, in some sense, rightly, he is frustrated and doesn't want God to show mercy because it is of evil, right? Like they... Assyria and Babylon, the empires, have subjected Israel because of their love for power and violence and control and godlessness. Yet somehow, it's this king that understands God, a God who Jonah doesn't even mention. And he understands that that God may turn from destroying the city. The God of Jonah may decide to withhold justice and judgment in favor of God's mercy. The king, ironically, is the one that truly had the ears to hear the call to repentance, even when Jonah, in some sense, was unwilling to call for this repentance. And miraculously, right, take it up a whole other level, God hears their honest repentance and turns and chooses mercy. God turns in response to Nineveh's turning. And although we didn't read chapter 4, if you go to the next chapter of Jonah, so Jonah, God's messenger, uh, responds, throwing a party. No, does not throw a party. In anger, he is mad. And Jonah is livid because Jonah just knew that God's mercy and steadfast love would, would win the day, <laughs> that, that God would choose that love and that mercy instead of justice and judgment. Jonah ends up being more emotionally attached to a plant than to a city full of people. Having a plant to keep the harsh sun rays off of him is, is really the first thing in the book of Jonah that makes him very happy. Very tove tove. But instead of rejoicing at the city completely changing their lives to his God, to Yahweh, he is angry. He wishes that God would have chosen to overthrow the city of Nineveh and given them to death and destruction instead of repentance and grace. And Mark and Jonah, God seems to get a kick out of turning things really upside down doing new things, and calling people to new possibilities of the kingdom of God. Even the calling of the disciples changes the way that the rabbi and student relationships started. 
So instead of this, the student choosing the rabbi or teacher, Jesus is choosing and calling the students. My husband, Chadwick, is working on um, his dissertation where he's able to choose right, a group of professors to help him curate and craft this, this amazing document. At least I think it will be amazing. You've got it. <laughs> and right, so he, part of his decision is based on some of the relationships that he's had, right? Like, can he, can he trust this person's opinion? Some of those kinds of things, but also on the knowledge and experience, right, of his mentors. He, he needs them to have knowledge in his subject area. Now, Chadwick, my, again, my husband, choosing an advisor is like the student in Jesus' time choosing a rabbi to study under. But Jesus totally flips this upside down, where the rabbi, the teacher, is calling the student. And it's not based on merit. It's not based on their grades or the number of peer-reviewed articles that they've published in the last five years. It's not based on knowledge of a subject area, but it's based on the love of God and the reality that God is making all things new. Because based on Nineveh's own merit and history, God should not have chosen mercy. God should have chosen judgment, right? This is where in some sense, Jonah wants to be like, woohoo, right? Like, you agree with me. <laughs> in some sense, yes. Based on Jonah's history of disobedience and a hardened heart, God should not have provided a fish that I like to name Grace. I kind of stole that from Pastor Scott. But this fish, right, like gives the vehicle in which Jonah has the second chance. He is thrown up into new possibilities. By my own merit and lack of understanding, right, God should not invite me into new possibilities. But the good news is that God is constantly calling us to the ways that God is mercifully turning upside down individuals and communities to be a part of the new creation. The idea of God calling us towards God's love and mercy is what we like to call in Nazarene circles, prevenient grace. It is a grace that is constantly and freely calling us and drawing us to God. It is empowering us to be able to respond. It is a grace that, that helps us to hear past our own negative thoughts and the negative thoughts of others, to receive the news that we are seen and we are invited. What are we invited to? <laughs> That's the catch. We're invited to trust God. We're invited to trust that God is doing something new, even when we don't have the imagination to see it. We're invited to trust the God that opens up possibilities for individuals and whole communities to live into the good news and experience the newness of God's kingdom. We're invited to trust the God that calls us to leave our past brokenness, our past violence, our lack of imagination, and our control of how God should act towards others in order to be caught up in the love and grace of God. 
Because when we are caught up in this love and this grace and this transformation, we often, not all the time, Jonah, but we often want others to be caught up in the invitation of God's new possibilities too. The disciples, in some sense, it's this catch and release. Right? People are not caught for ourselves, but caught to be sent. What I love about Jesus' calling is that it doesn't include a strategic plan or equation of how to live into God's redemptive mercy. Although at the same time, it's also incredibly frustrating that there's not <laughs> some type, right? Give me some instructions, right? Give me something laid out. It's both frustrating and something that I love. The lack of control and the lack of control. They didn't, Peter and Andrew and James and John, they step out into uncertainty. They didn't ask Jesus for a calendar for the next year, right? They weren't like, okay, Jesus, like I have to, like I've got this big shipment next week or let me look at our five-year plan. Oh, in three years, something's not right. Like this is not looking good. I don't like that you might be crucified, right? Like they don't get, they don't get this whole experience ahead of time. They're just called to trust God in that moment. There's no planner, but there's trust. And they know at least that the trust in the middle of confusion and uncertainty, that's what they're called to. That's that next step. They put themselves into a posture to be able to receive this newness of Christ, to surrender and follow Christ. They had to surrender their expectations of who Christ is and who Christ will care for in order to truly follow him. And we know that sometimes they get it wrong. <laughs> How about that? In their journey with Christ, we see them totally miss the mark. They completely misunderstand. But we also see them reorienting themselves to Christ. The city of Nineveh shows us that repentance is a part of that process. Their faith amazes me because they repent knowing that they may still face the wrath and the doom of God, right? They, they are repenting in hopes of it, but not, not with a guarantee. They recognize that they have a part to play in being able to receive God's grace, but they cannot force God's hand. And they acknowledge that God has a part to play. They cannot achieve grace and mercy and redemption by themselves. And so they put themselves in a posture of honest repentance. And for the Ninevites, they take this posture unsure of, of what is next, but trusting that God may be doing something new. I mean, who knows? So the king says, who knows maybe God is actually at work and maybe I don't understand it all but I trust that God is still inviting me inviting you inviting whole cities whole nations the world right into something new that we can experience how God is revealing the kingdom of God in and through us God may want to change our lives with redemptive grace, but God is still inviting us to participate in this. 
And we're invited again, not only for ourselves, but for others, for all of creation, from the greatest to the least, from the kings to the cows. And if we're honest, at least if I'm honest, (laughs) this can be intimidating. It can be overwhelming. And And the responses from today can almost be overwhelming in the sense of, oh, I didn't do that, right? Like I'm more like Jonah than than like these guys, than the whole city. We can be paralyzed too by fear of the unknown. We can have have fear and anger for our current brokenness in small ways in larger systems. Again, that that almost paralyzes us. We We can be stopped by a fear of being honest about our own brokenness or of the broken and destructive systems that we've been a part of. Maybe we have a fear that maybe it's too late for me to repent. Maybe it's too late for me to turn. It can be incredibly intimidating to drop our nets and enter into vulnerability. A few years ago, my life was disrupted, intentionally disrupted, or not me intentionally, but disrupted instead of interrupted. And it was turned upside down by some health issues, from, from physical to mental, emotional health. So I've often been a perfectionist in a different ways. I was shaped to think that I was only worthy if I was good enough, but I was only good enough if what I did was good enough, and if it was perfect. Now, if you've ever experienced anxiety or depression, you may have felt a similar feeling of where you can't live up to your own expectations, or the expectations of others. Sometimes you can hardly get out of bed. And in the midst of an identity crisis, because I was trying to figure out who am I if I cannot push through? Who am I if I cannot produce? Who am I if I cannot live up to these expectations? I was taking a class on prayer and scripture. And there was a book that we were signed called To Pray and to Love, Conversations on Prayer with the Early Church by Roberta C. Bondi. In one chapter, she discusses how to approach prayer by after she, she builds on something. So this approach to prayer is like chapter three, which you may be like, why on a book of prayer is this like only to chapter three? Well, she does this, this work, right, on, on connecting how our caring for others and our prayer life are sometimes one and the same, right, and how they impact each other. They're just constantly impacted by the other. And so she finally comes to, right, approaching prayer. And she voices an anxiety that I was feeling in my prayer life that I didn't really understand. The anxiety of whether or not I was praying the right way. And she continues to say that there are are kind of all of these different elements, but there are things that kind of, that are combined And this is a quote from her, to make us feel guilty, frustrated, and embarrassed. Because we are not more loving, and we do not pray more. Vital energy and church life is then squandered, trying to keep other people from finding out that we may be Christian frauds. While underneath the good front we put up are suffering, discouraged, and often very angry hearts. And I found myself in that spot. I realized that I was almost paralyzed in my prayer life because I felt like I would never be good enough. Why start or even try 
if it will never be good enough for God. But in this painful but illuminating process, God revealed a place where I needed to surrender and assume a different posture. I needed to turn some. God was calling me to trust in the love of God that receives me as I am. That God sees me and is reaching out to me just as God called and was reaching out and so desperately wanted to overturn, but really turn over Nineveh, the wicked and destructive Ninevites, into a place of renewal. Bondi also references Romans 8, 26, and this is one of my favorite, one of my favorite New Testament passages. In the same way, the Spirit comes to help our weakness. We don't know what we should pray. But the Spirit himself pleads our case with unexpressed groans. We are called to experience the newness of God's kingdom, but we are not expected to do so alone. If we learn anything from Nineveh, it's that it's never too late to participate in the kingdom of God and to receive the newness of life in God. At the end of my prayer and scripture class, I did a piece of artwork. I believe we have a photo of it. Thank you. Um, now, I have to tell you, right, I normally, when it comes to artwork, uh, I prefer abstract, in part because that perfectionist element of me, right, if it's abstract, then you don't know if something I did was wrong, right? Like, you're like, oh, cool, uh, right? In some senses, it's for my own peace of mind. But in this, in this season, right, of wrestling with who I am and, and combating perfectionism, I decided uh, to do this piece of art where I drew hands. And they're hands that are receiving. I don't know if you can see. It's meant to be difficult to see, but it's also pictures, so, you know, uh, my bad. But there's a little gold kind of wisps coming down to the hands, not coming from. That's important. Um, but I, I did this piece... As a, well, the hands were in charcoal, in some sense, because I was feeling so burned out like this. I feel like I am nothing but ashes right now. I feel like I am nothing but charcoal. It was an honest representation of my depression, inadequacy, and desire for renewal. And the light, right, these, these gold wisps in this time, for me, it represented the light of God, the newness of God that I am receiving with open hands. And whether or not I think those are good enough, God is still giving the light. God is wanting to, to transform us. And I keep this, often in my office or, or someone else, but so, somewhere where I see consistently, um, because I need to always remind myself to surrender continually and to be okay with having enough of what I have right now is enough for God. I also need it to remind myself that God's grace and love and redemptive light is also continual. I can trust that the light that promises new life, not only for me, but for all of creation, is always there and is always drawing me near drawing us near. But it is me catching the light to then help others catch and be caught up in the newness of life in God as well. 
sometimes God, sometimes God's redemptive grace calls us to repentance as individuals and as communities, as cities, as nations, as all of creation. And it looks like honesty, confession, repentance, and surrender. But other times God's redemptive grace is calling us to trust that God is doing something new, even when we don't see it. To take the step where we recognize that we may not know where God is, where God is moving in this or where God will take us, but that we will trust that God is bringing newness and renewal. Because God is constantly creating new possibilities of redemption. And God is constantly inviting us to receive and participate in that redemption. And that, that is exciting. So may our lives be postured and oriented to receive this newness of God's kingdom and help others catch and be caught up in this newness and grace and love. Pray with me. Posture yourself with me. Help us to be persistent and brave, God, willing to trust you enough to believe that whatever form our lives take, you are always at work in us and through us in ways that we don't always know. Help us to receive your light. Help us to see where we need to turn from. Help us to catch your mercy and to be caught up in your love and your relentlessness in calling us so that we, then we can extend that, so that we can then help others be caught up in your mercy and your light and your love and your calling. May we glorify you and all that we do. In your name, amen.